and welcome to the Brain Food Podcast for General Counsel from Pinsent Masons. My name's Matthew McGee and I'm a journalist here at Pinsent Masons. And today we'll be investigating GC's role in helping their companies address the climate crisis. Climate change has long been a social, political and ecological issue, but meaningful action can't happen without change from the business world. And that's because companies direct and use a huge portion of the world's resources. And unless they alter how they do that, then true change on the climate just won't be possible. The stakes simply couldn't be higher. For 30 years, each decade has been hotter than the last one. 17 of the 18 warmest years ever recorded have happened since 2000. Extreme weather events like stronger, longer heat waves and intense heavy rainfall are on the increase. The UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has warned that this means extinction of plant and animal species, reduced food and water security and damage to human health, all on a sliding scale relative to the increase in temperature. And this is a problem that won't be solved unless business gets involved. There's evidence that companies realise this, even if governments in some of the world's biggest countries don't. There's also evidence that the law is becoming one of the main tools for changing corporate behaviour. So what should companies be doing? And what role should GCs play in that? To help us answer those questions, we'll be hearing from Alistair Morrison, who's in charge of client strategy for Pinsent Masons, Philippe Joubert, whose Earth on Board organisation helps companies reframe their strategies in light of the climate crisis, and from Madalena Lockery-Grant, Group Legal and Tax Director at construction company Lang O'Rourke. It can be hard to focus on this bigger picture when the world is occupied with dealing with a more immediate threat, coronavirus. But as we'll hear... How we deal with this pandemic could have far-reaching consequences for climate action. It might give us a break point, a second chance to take the kind of radical action that it's become clear will be necessary. But first we'll look at the role of business in this issue. Should they be involved at all? Alistair Morrison says they have a duty to act and that action will vary enormously from sector to sector. The general obligations on a company when it comes to a climate change issue will really depend on the environment that a particular organisation is working with and what kind of sector it's in and what it's 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 doing. There's a kind of a common theme that I have is that uh, companies have an obligation to improve against themselves and to make a contribution to helping to arrest climate change. And that might vary um, according to the particular sector they're in, the particular challenges they have and how they might have to transition from uh, one uh, particular way of doing things to another. If you look at just our business, we're a professional services business uh, working in the legal environment. The challenges that we have, uh, we've We've set ourselves quite tough challenges and indeed met them and um, and exceeded them. But you can't help thinking that that's relatively straightforward compared to the challenges that are faced by some of the clients that we're working with in particular sectors where they really are in areas where they have to transition their whole business. You know, a classic example would be if you're uh, in, in, in hydrocarbons and you're kind of uh, and providing energy after looking at other ways and your source of income and your source of profitability is through hydrocarbons, yet you know you have to do something that goes way beyond uh, utilising the existing sources of energy to develop energy 
into new areas and thinking about uh, how you transition from the old to the new. Philippe Joubert says companies have no choice. They must act and know. If you have to summarize in one sentence the way we have been doing business for nearly one century now, um, is uh, we have taken nature for granted and unlimited. We have never recognized the value that the service uh, that nature is rendered to us free of charge. Unfortunately, as we have been doing this for decades, decades and decades, we reach the limit of the planet. Scientists say we reach the planet boundaries. And we are using free of charge the service rendered by nature at the moment, uh, pollination, water, air, our business model, which is based upon these free resources, is just dead. So we need to change. The year of 2015 will certainly be seen as the year where the world has recognized this. Because for the first time, we produce the sustainable development goals that are nothing else than trying to decouple uh, development from abusing nature or abusing social capital. Business is no longer a problem, it should be a solution. Business have certainly the origin are certainly at the origin of seventy or eighty percent of the of the impact that we have. But business is the only human organization I know that has the resources the organization and the speed of reaction able to help us to find a solution. So business is a solution. But, and to be the real solution, business should change. We should find another business model that is not taking nature for, for, for illimited and granted. It's one thing to say that companies should change, but quite another to make it actually happen. Philippe has already told us that 2015's Sustainable Development Goals, where UN member nations agreed to support a plan of action to meet 17 goals, was a watershed. But is this being felt on the ground? Madalena Lochry-Grant says that out there in the real world, a very definite shift has happened. I think there has been a big shift, even if you just look at the last 12 to 18 months. The understanding of the criticality of this is really starting to resonate. And, and when people ask how, uh, how it's possible to get this on the agenda in a boardroom, the answer is it's, it's actually very easy uh, now. I think if you asked people who were trying to tackle this and move it up the agenda a few years ago, even two to three years ago, it would have been more of a challenge. But right now, and I don't foresee this changing. Uh, there has been a transformational attitude change at board level across all industries on, on this issue and a recognition that it is a significant business risk, um, an opportunity, yes, but a significant business risk that needs to be addressed and kept on the agenda. Sustainability isn't something that people can park off to the side and pick it up when they when they choose. It may have been at some point, but it's certainly not the case, I think, 
anymore um and there is a there is a huge appetite i'm seeing huge appetite to understand the issues more and to understand what can and should be done and to understand the risks that exist even more and a recognition that in tackling the this as an issue and really tackling it that um, you know, from a sustainable and business perspective and a future-proofing of a business, it absolutely has to be tackled. And Philippe says that the shift has reached not just chief executives, but the investors whose views and actions can change the direction of whole sections of the economy. You see some very interesting movements last year uh, on the business roundtable in the United States. Or, or some institution in UK or the World Energy Economic Forum, uh, people are starting now to understand that this model of shareholder primacy uh, is not sustainable for sure, and uh, it's not uh, what we need for societies. You know, when BlackRock or other big investors uh, are saying you should go to the purpose of the business, you should look at stakeholders, etc. You should change the way you do business. I don't think they do that to save the planet or humanity. They do that because they need to save their business and that have understood that the way we are doing business at the moment is too dangerous for these big players because these big players are systemic players. They have nowhere to hide if the system is in trouble, and they will die with the system. So they have a very clear conscience that they have to change now. You can talk about banks, insurance, rating agency, exchange. Every, every single part of the financial market is moving in that direction. What they call impact finance now uh, is, is taking the lead. Not yet in terms of volume, because it's, it's starting, but in terms of speed of growth, this is taking the lead. If this is understood at the very top of major companies now, what business is it of GCs and senior legal staff? Well, for one thing, a GC or a head of legal is someone a company turns to when they want to discuss what the right thing to do is. That's a fascinating position to be in, and one that GCs should take seriously. There are specific legal risks here, but the bigger picture is more interesting. This is an opportunity to help shape the future of the organisation. And Alistair Morrison says GCs are already aware of the issues and are in a unique position to help. When we look at uh, discussions that we're having with the general counsel community, uh, it's really interesting to see uh, the overall level of awareness and interest uh, in seeking to make a difference. The kind of awareness at a personal level is really high. Everybody knows the challenges and issues that we face. I think the kind of phrase I might use is it goes from awareness to activation. How can I take that awareness and activate it such that it makes a difference? Then the awareness to activation point also comes in when one looks at how you might use your power or control levers within the within the legal context of your organization and your influence very senior legal people have a great degree of influence within an organization and many of them are really really good advocates so armed with 
a technical knowledge or a good scientific background of the issues, coupled with a knowledge of what is going on within an organization, one can therefore be using influence, influence in the board to be raising consciousness around issues and seeing what an organization can do. You can't really have a situation where something like this is outsourced to a department. It's got to be in the consciousness of, a, of an organization. And therefore, uh, that kind of facilitative role, endorsing, empowering, um, connecting, becomes really, really important. Madalena Lockery-Grant has found herself in exactly this position with a personal interest in the issue and keen to steer her company in the right direction. But some legal leaders might worry about whether they will be listened to, whether they have the internal standing to speak up on an issue that isn't strictly, technically, a legal one. Madalena says they shouldn't underestimate their influence. I think a lot of senior lawyers and senior legal leaders perhaps don't always realise the extent of their ability to influence going beyond legal issues. Um, and I certainly think that, that GCs and legal leaders can very much leverage their role as, as trusted advisors in encouraging this positive change. And CEOs, I've, I think, and certainly from my experience, are increasingly looking to legal leaders to provide that leadership and, and some strategic advice on initially how to navigate the risk um, and the opportunities presented by climate change, but obviously then building on that um, and and looking at the the strategy that might flow from it. The role of in-house lawyers, I think, is is evolving, uh, and in particular, increasingly focused on not not just what's legal, but also what's right. I I do think that legal teams are are really well placed to support on a company on on climate change efforts and it's not it's not just on the green issues the you know, like a company's carbon footprint but it's also looking at wider issues like governance and the wider implications of issues like human rights things have changed rapidly over the last 12 to 18 months and so i think certainly lawyers will be pushing at an open door to um, to raise this as an issue and ideas around possible resolution or uh, strategies or considerations the company might like to take. I think from a from a personal perspective, it, it's been a massive learning curve, but I'm very personally invested and personally interested in the climate change agenda and I think that really does help if there is a personal connection it's not enough of, enough on its own you've got to balance it against the needs of the business but I think having that personal enthusiasm really does help because it means you you in directing the board or in directing your CEO you're being very very well thought through, but very authentic in how you raise these these issues. And, you know, you of, of, of itself, you're then not just demonstrating that you're trying to tick something off a list. You're demonstrating a real desire to shift the dial. A GC's role here is not, though, 
just about their position as a general advisor. It's also about law, which is increasingly a tool being used by individuals, governments and courts to ensure that businesses change their behaviour. Philippe points to the Peruvian farmer suing a European energy company over the effect of emissions on a glacial lake which he said threatened his land. Or to New York City's case against energy companies over the costs of dealing with the impact of global warming. Madalena points to a ruling this year by the UK Court of Appeal that in adopting the UK government's airport's national policy statement, which backed a third runway at Heathrow Airport, the government had failed to consider its commitments to the Paris Agreement. She thinks this ruling will be pivotal in focusing minds on the legal aspect of the issue and how the law will increasingly be used to ensure organisations meet climate change requirements. Anybody who's in the construction sector will be acutely aware of the impact of the Heathrow decision in the Court of Appeal that, that came out a little while ago. The Court of Appeal effectively held that the government's decision on, on Heathrow and the third runway was unlawful because it didn't take account of uh, or explain how the government took account of its own policy on, on climate, climate change. What it does is, is start to put pressure increasingly on um, governments more widely, and that will be the impact of that and other decisions that have come out. And decisions like that will have major consequences for future infrastructure projects. There have been cases overseas and certainly in the Netherlands, there was the 2019, at the end of last year, there was the decision of the Supreme Court where uh, the government was effectively ordered to speed up its efforts to cut carbon emissions, which was really interesting. And the the Supreme Court in, in the Netherlands based its judgment on the UN Climate Convention, but also, and this was quite interesting, on the obligations that exist in the European Convention on Human Rights. So effectively, that the government was breaching people, individuals, hum- human rights by not, not acting quick enough. And those decisions are not to be viewed in isolation. I think there, there will be similar decisions across, across the globe. Alistair Morrison says the legal and regulatory landscape is changing, while Philippe says that GCs must make their companies aware of the risks. There are a whole raft of areas around where we're just seeing uh, growing and growing areas of um, regulatory uh, and legal changes coming through from governmental organisations or from regulators that are having a, that are having an impact. So I'd kind of say expertise, technical awareness of some of these issues, because that becomes important in terms of having positions in within organizations uh, uh, that uh, and advising organizations of of positions to avoid contravening um, regulatory environments or legislative environments because uh, it's going to become more and more common that there will be in certain sectors um, class action litigations um, uh, against uh, against organizations who might be falling foul of benchmark standards regulations or legislation when you look Anywhere in the world, you always have the three main responsibilities of the board, what I call the three duties. The first duty is you take care of the interest of the company, not the shareholders. The company means all the stakeholders. Second, due care and diligence. And this is quite interesting because 
care and diligence means you don't need to be a specialist of everything, but you need to do your homework. You need to have eyes open on the risk and opportunities, and you need to give some guidance to the management. And for me, I defend the, the, the idea that 2015 will be seen as the year of tremendous change in the duty of the board on this aspect. Because of um, uh, Paris Agreement, you cannot say you don't know. And this, for me, changed fundamentally the risk and the responsibility of the directors. 2015 is probably the year where being climatoseptic is not a safe harbor for directors. And directors should go even further. Uh, directors should have a very clear idea of where the risks are and what you are doing, what is your strategy to mitigate this risk and protect the interest of the company and put the company in a safe ground for growth. Of course, the climate is not the only crisis we're facing just now. Coronavirus has had an impact on all businesses and will present both immediate practical concerns and a wider economic challenge for months or perhaps years to come. It's a health and social tragedy, but it has shown us what a different world looks like, one without ubiquitous travel or commuting, one where working methods are more sustainable and the environment has a chance to recover, however slightly. Alistair Morrison doubts, though, that we can pin our hopes on a sudden and enduring change of behaviour across the world. And indeed, air pollution in China is back to pre-coronavirus levels, confirming that some things will go very much back to normal after lockdown. So what kind of change will be the legacy of coronavirus? Alistair says that this could give us the opportunity for an economic reset. Governments will be investing huge sums in jump-starting economies and protecting jobs. And this presents a chance to rewire the economy, to focus this investment on projects and incentives that make for a properly sustainable future. I don't think it's so much about we've radically learned to alter our behaviours and therefore we're not going to fly around as much or, or commute to work anymore or those kind of things because they'll gradually come back on stream and, and this is a global issue, not a kind of a localised issue to a particular place. But if you look to the last global financial crisis, um, when the world went into economic meltdown, there were stimulation policies to get the world out of economic meltdown. So, for example, you had the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, ARA, and a whole load of stimulus uh, loan packages um, and, and, and stimulus was put around, but it was put around clean energy. So one of the things that happened as a result of that was that uh, I think there were $90 billion worth of loans that went into clean energy investments. And one of those helped to build Tesla's first factory. I think now if we look at the link between COVID and the economic recovery and stimulus, I think we should be creating awareness in the legal community about the kind of opportunity that exists to stimulate um, further clean sources of energy as we look to make our recovery to put money in, and, and effort behind that so that as part of the deal are clean energy obligations or investments into renewable energy. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at this because there's no doubt the evidence is that governments can make a material and enormous shift in relation to climate change. And that's the biggest, that's the biggest shift. So I think we could take this opportunity now and look to see how we could make that shift. This isn't an environmentalist pipe dream, it's what business itself is asking for. 
200 firms have written to the UK government, for example, asking for post-COVID investment to focus on industries whose growth is environmentally sustainable and explicitly asking for green strings to be attached to grants or loans. Philippe says that in France, this is already happening, offering a glimpse of a hopeful future for business and the climate. We are bailing out a lot of companies, aren't we? Because most of them are in big trouble. But the first question that the, the, the financial system is asking now is, can we really bail out companies from the old model? Or do we want to build out company for the new model? If this is now happening in France. The, the $10 billion that we are uh, handing over to, to Air France and KLM, in which the governments are shareholders, they are building out, but with what we call green strings attached. Means you will receive the money, but you have to have a certain change in in, for example, in the in the emission uh, of uh, of the company, uh, because we think it's important. So you see, you have consumer behaving differently, financial market, the government also, because uh, you see the European government is now insisting that the green uh, the green plan uh, is uh, used as a base for. Uh, choice in the sector we want to help and the sector we don't need to help that much. Thanks for joining us for the latest Brain Food for General Counsel podcast. Remember, you can keep up to date with hour-by-hour coverage of business law news by the Outlaw Reporting Team at PincentMasons.com. And don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. Brain Food for General Counsel was produced and presented by Matthew McGee for Pinsent Masons, the international professional services firm with law at its core.